Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm here today with my colleagues Adam Beckett, Madeline Davies and Hattie Williams, who've just returned from York where they've been holed up in General Synod for four days and they all seem surprisingly sprightly and energetic. In this week's Church Times we have a 16-page pullout giving in-depth coverage of all the debates at Synod. If you're not a subscriber, go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe where you can try 10 issues for £10. So on this week's podcast, we're going to talk about the highlights of the Synod. Adam, climate change and investment, this was a key debate. Synod ended up voting for the motion which reaffirms the Church Commissioner's plan for investment and how to deal with climate change through investment after a heated debate around whether the church should disinvest from fossil fuel companies, whether it's actually working or whether they should carry on the the strategy they've begun, which is this engagement with fossil fuel companies that we've seen before. There was a presentation by Loretta Minghella, the new first Church of States Commissioner at her first synod in York, and she was extolling all the good things about the Church of England strategy, something particularly called the Transition Pathway Initiative, TPI, which is a database of fossil fuel companies and utility companies, electricity companies, things like that, and where they are in terms of climate change response and how well they're doing. And that really advises investors, including the Church of England, but they're in charge of this, I think, £8 trillion fund from around the world, not just churches, all kinds of different organisations. The TPI is supposed to tell them whether they should continue investing in these companies and how well these companies are doing. Before this synod debate, the Bishop of Oxford was sparring with the Bishop of Manchester on, on Radio 4 and there was this Oxford Dawson motion saying that church investment bodies really need to speed up, or, you know, bring forward the deadline at which they disinvest if companies aren't getting their act together on climate change. I mean, how did that go down at the synod? Essentially, in the end, it came down to being too soon. The Oxford motion was that the church should start to disinvest by 2020 from these companies, which, of course, is only two years away now. So the national investing bodies and their officers thought that was far too fast. That amendment was defeated. An amendment that passed, though, was from uh, Canon Giles Goddard from Southwark, who said that disinvestment should start by 2023. Well, it's only three years. Does that really matter? But it's seemingly to the investing bodies, it really does matter those three years. It's kind of a win all round because disinvestment activists like the charity Operation Noah and Christian Aid can say, we've got a deadline, disinvestment is going to start in 2023. And the church commissioners and the investing bodies can say, our plan is working, Synod has backed us, we can keep going for at least another five years with this plan, then disinvestment if companies aren't changing. So climate change campaigners have, have reacted quite positively to this, but said make sure that you think about disinvesting. They can paint it as a win for all sides. So Operation Noah and Christian Aid can say disinvestment is going to happen. Stories in The Times and I think The Guardian and The Telegraph are all pointing to that fact that there is a hard deadline in 2023 when the church will start to think about disinvesting. And also the National Investing Body officers were keen to stress that disinvestment has always been a tool at their disposal and it would be wrong of them to say we're not going to disinvest because then where's the threat to these companies? I mean, these companies need to be forced to change. That's the whole point of the strategy. So if they say we're not disinvesting, then there's no real threat there. Another key debate that took place at the Synod was regarding the shake-up of cathedrals. Madeline, tell us more. 
There was quite a lot of anticipation about this debate because after the report of the Cathedral's working group was published, there was some disquiet about it. Angela Tilby's column in our paper, which was fairly critical of the report, was one of our most read pieces of the past month. So I was quite surprised that during the debate, most of the contributions were very positive, including from residential canons who were the most sort of critical respondents to the consultation. So it was actually quite a good-natured debate. Basically, the proposals are to shake up the governance of cathedrals so that there'll be more non-members of cathedral staff on chapter and they'll be drawing in kind of more scrutiny from outside the cathedral itself and arguably sort of giving the bishop more involvement in the process as well. So there were some concerns about that. But generally, the proposals were sort of welcomed, although most speeches sort of raised some points that they wanted to see clarified or wanted a bit of reassurance about. And members of the working group had to offer just some assurances that this isn't a means of kind of removing that distance between the dean and the bishop, which a lot of people in cathedrals feel is important, creative space where people can take risks. But overall, I would say the proposals were quite warmly welcomed. So what happens next to the proposals now that the Synod's given the nod? Some of the proposals can be implemented without any legislation at all, and some of them are actually already underway. Some of them will require changes to legislation, so the Synod has asked for a first kind of draft of that legislation to be brought back in a year's time. It was going to be earlier in February. There was an amendment to say we need a bit more time to come up with some good legislation, so there's been a bit of a delay there. There were some concerns expressed in the debate about money. Yeah, so I guess the backdrop to the debate is that several cathedrals are um, in quite significant financially challenging times and several people sort of raise this point that, you know, however good the legislation is and however strong the staff that you bring in, if cathedrals don't have money, they won't be able to implement these changes and, and they'll struggle. Obviously, the catalyst for the working group's work was some really severe financial problems at Peterborough Cathedral. People are quite keen that one of the things that we do is to actually go to the government and ask for more money. That's definitely kind of an underlying anxiety. People were very keen to quash this rumour, which kind of originated in a report in the Daily Mail that cathedrals could actually be sold. That was sort of firmly rejected by people in the know, but nevertheless there is a worry about how cathedrals are going to fund their work, particularly some of the ones which don't have, so they can't sort of draw on sort of large amounts of funding or they might be in poorer areas. The Bishop of Chelmsford, Stephen Cottrell, has long been a vocal campaigner on nuclear weapons and he wrote for our comments section back in February on this very topic. Hattie, Bishop Cottrell brought a motion before the Synod. What, what happened? That's right. He started by saying that there was no circumstances in which modern trident missiles, nuclear weapons, could ever be used or should even be held by governments, either as a threat or a deterrent. The Synod hadn't actually discussed the issue for 11 years, but he said it was particularly topical because of the 100 years since the end of the First World War, but also some of the political situations going on at the moment between, obviously, President Trump and Kim Jong-un. But right after his initial presentation, Prudence Daly from Oxford actually brought a point of order saying that it wasn't actually particularly relevant and could the Synod instead move to contingency business on homelessness given the shortage of time. But actually in the end the nuclear debate wasn't hugely long. 
everyone was in agreement with the principles of the motion, though the motion itself, I would say, was a little more softly worded than perhaps the initial presentation from Bishop Cottrell. So Sean Doherty of St Melitis College, who's a member for London, he brought an amendment. As I say, the motion itself, you could say it's quite softly worded. It calls on the government to welcome the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and later it calls on the government to, quote, respond positively to the treaty. So Doherty's amendment was basically saying that respond positively is not a strong enough statement, and he suggested that the Synod should actually be calling on the government to sign up to the treaty, otherwise it just sounds a bit vague and there's no kind of specific action to be taken. So his amendment actually fell. Brigadier in Dobby said that he wouldn't support the amendment because nuclear pacification was actually unrealistic. And there are a couple of similar points along those lines. He said that we've no knowledge in a fast-changing world where the next threat will come from. In other words, that we don't know whether nuclear weapons will actually be essential as a deterrent or how much weight they'll have in political situations that we're not yet a part of. There were some speakers from the military who certainly had military experience, weren't there? What, What were they saying? People spoke about their own experience or the experience of army service people who actually work on the nuclear submarines, urging the Synod to actually have a think about what life on those submarines is like and the human cost of the possession of nuclear weapons, not just the consequences should they ever be used. So some interesting reflections from Lieutenant Gemma Winterton, part of the Arms Forces Synod, formerly known as the Forces Synodical Council. Do we have any sense of whether the government will take notice of this or whether it's more sort of virtue signalling? Well, I think you could say either. I mean, a couple of bishops spoke as well, the Bishop of Portsmouth and Bishop of Liverpool and Coventry as well. Perhaps they could lobby the government as they have done on in other areas such as the NHS. You do wonder how much change will actually come about because there's no specific action. You could qualify calling on someone, asking them to respond positively. You could quantify that in, in any way, I think. Madeline, one criticism that's come out of the Synod on some blogs and social media is is that a lot of time was spent on these very real-world issues, nuclear weapons, the NHS, all good things to debate, but the Synod ran out of time to receive the report from its evangelism task group, which I think many think should be a priority for the church. Can you tell us a bit about how that came about and what some of the reaction has been? On Monday, there was time dedicated to legislation. There was quite a lot to get through, and particularly around the representation rules. The reasons that went on so long was that numerous amendments were brought before the Synod, most of which which fell. So there was a lot of time spent debating amendments which aren't going to go forward as part of the legislation. And because of that, the Synod did run out of time, A, for a particularly long debate on the NHS, and B, to hear from the Evangelism Task Group, who was going to present its report. It wrapped up this year and was going to present back kind of the work that's been undertaken and how that's going to be taken forward. The group was set up about five years ago after a really urgent debate at Synod about evangelism, about the church connecting with society. It did seem a bit of a shame that time couldn't be found to then hear back from them about what they'd achieved. I think it is going to be moved forward to February, but there were definitely some frustrations expressed, perhaps about the balance of priorities. Obviously, legislation is important, but given the scale of the challenge in evangelising the country, it's a shame that time wasn't found to, to give that more weight. And accountability, I suppose, as well. If they've commissioned this group, they want to hear back hear back about what it's done and scrutinise it a bit. You know, arguably, that's the piece of work which Cinder was, was going to hear about, which is really very outward-looking. It would have drawn on what we know, perhaps, about the society that we're trying to reach. There are some fairly concerning statistics which we heard from the Archbishop's Council and the Commissioner's 
around the percentage of people who go to church, who give to church, and this was perhaps an opportunity to hear about what the church is doing to reach them. So it did feel a little bit as if the momentum that had built up five years ago to prioritise this had been lost somewhat. But it may come back in February 2019. Yeah, I think people are very keen, particularly the members who were keen to present in February. York Synod is always something of a marathon. I feel I've put my time in over the years, although I have to admit I wasn't there this year. I was outdoors mainly, which you'll be pleased to hear. Adam, it was your first York Synod. What did you make of it? Any highlights? It's got a real dynamic around it because there's a lot of engagement between people and talking to people that they don't normally speak to. There's bishops meeting lay members, meeting clergy, meeting the youth council. One highlight for me had to be the screening of football in the main hall. They actually moved some seminars on the House of Bishops teaching document on sexuality on Saturday afternoon to make time, which was actually really well attended. I mean, I don't know what I expected, but I I probably didn't expect to watch the quarterfinal of the World Cup with about eight bishops and the Archbishops of York and Canterbury, primate of the Church of Pakistan and the Archbishop of Southeast Asia as well. Quite the mixed bunch. We've all been enjoying the Archbishop of York's commentary on Twitter. Madeline, you've been to a few of these. What was your highlight this year? Did you enjoy it? Definitely quite a marathon over five days. A couple of things. Really interesting contribution in one of the climate change debates from a young priest in the Diocese of Winchester, Dr Benjamin Sargent, which I did find quite interesting. He was talking about how climate change is actually a symptom of consumerism and he compared consumerism to a religion. So he was talking about sort of the endless desire to acquire more and how really that's a competing religion. And what we really need to do is, yes, tackle climate change, but also do that through offering a different message about what the point of life is about um, I guess our morals and you know what the purpose is of of being here at all and I thought it just offered sort of a slightly different angle on the debate and really engaged with the society that we live in and our sort of bigger questions about what it is that's actually driving consumerism really interesting and also we had some nice conversations in the downtime including meeting one of the laity from the Diocese of London Enid Barron who's a Church Times reader which was encouraging and also was celebrating her 50th wedding anniversary so true dedication to synod that was inspiring was her husband there he was so she was actually presenting one of the motions around what the church can do to tackle climate change and her husband was up in the public gallery listening and also celebrating their 50th anniversary so yeah congratulations to them hattie highlights I was actually very moved by a presentation which kicked off the report and debate around safeguarding on Saturday morning. It was given by Jo Kind of the survivors group, Maxas. She is actually a survivor of abuse in the church herself and therefore it was actually the first time that the synod had ever been addressed by a survivor of abuse in the church. So quite a significant step, I think, to invite her to present. She spoke of the impact of abuse and what it means to a person's well-being, how much it can change a person's life, really, work, relationships. Um, And it was just a very real and honest insight into the work that she's been doing to support survivors. And her presentation actually received a standing ovation from the Synod, which was really nice to see because there's been a lot of kind of negativity around safeguarding and how seriously the church takes it. So I think that was a symbolic way of welcoming some of the points that she was making. And there was a fringe meeting hosted by Maxas on Friday evening. Yes, that was attended by the Archbishops of Canterbury and York and also a number of bishops and survivors as well. They were addressed by Gile, a survivor of clerical abuse, and he was calling on the bishops and archbishops to really transform the culture of senior leadership in the church to be more responsive to survivors. Madeleine and I caught up with him afterwards and this is what he had to say. 
Friday night, there were about, what, 50 people? Both archbishops were there, quite a lot of senior figures and bishops. Sarah Mullaly was there, Tim Thornton, and the survivors took it in turns to stand up and speak, which framed it. That was immensely powerful because people heard really direct stories of pain and impact. And then I gave a keynote speech. You said what I knew you wanted to say, and you controlled it very well, you were very calm. I really confronted the issue of the crisis of the senior layer, and we felt that there needed to be something fed back to the senior group that was polite but very clear, that laid open the crisis that has been in many ways at the heart of what's been going on with bishops facing police investigation, bishops in denial, the whole structure, not knowing what to do and all kind of quivering and trembling and going what happens now and the kind of culture within which if you've got Bishop X, Y and Z in difficulty, every other bishop just goes for cover. All of that really, I felt, needed to be breached. So I spoke directly to Archbishop Welby. And were you in the gallery for the actual debate on the motion? I was. I think that the motion hasn't gone far enough, but it's been a very, very big leap, but it hasn't gone far enough. Survivors now have to work together to drive forward that change in a meaningful way. So we've got to make sure that that motion leads to a serious and effective and as independent as possible. One of the key things in the debate was this question of independence. And obviously it's a bit in tension with what Wellbeing others were saying about we don't want to just abdicate responsibility for this. And sometimes when I've talked to CC Pass and other people, they'd question whether it is wise to outsource it entirely. I kind of get that certain things have to be independent, but certain operational things clearly must begin in the church. So it's between moving from what can properly be done within the church and what then has to be appeal processes perhaps outside. Yeah. We may end up with a hybrid system, which may be workable if it's well designed, but would need to be looked at. It has to be designed with the partnership of survivors. What does this thing look like? What powers does this thing have? But I do agree with Sarah Mullaly in this, in that I think if the church just washes hands of it all, that enables the church to then walk away. But it needs to have a very strong check in place. If they get it right, it'll change the culture in a week. Compared to when you were bringing complaint, do you think it would be handled better? I think there's been a lot of movement, oh, for sure there has, but it does depend upon diocese to diocese. They haven't got an excuse not to get it right because they've all been doing intensive training. I've criticised the NST a lot, but the training side and you know, has been coming on, on a pace. One of the few things of the Elliot Review that was done was C4 training uh, for all bishops and senior clergy. I think there's a deeper set of issues in that a lot of the structures just aren't functioning like the CDM and it's completely inappropriate structure. Simon Butler made this point about does there need to be mediation with DNSTs and raising concerns. How did you react to that? Mediation needs to be something that's explored very seriously across the board for a lot of situations with survivors and that the church needs to create possibility for mediation. I mean I had mediation as you know but I had to drag that as two bishops to that day. They have to create a safe mediation route so that people don't have to do what I had to do. But I think they're aware of that. Not how do we help ourselves defend ourselves <laughs> against the enemy.
but how do we, in partnership with this person opposite us, help them move forward? Do you feel that you will leave this synod feeling a bit more hopeful? I think so. Sort of measured hope. I think it's going to be very critical that survivors are involved in what does this ombudsman look like? You know, what's the shape of this thing? How independent is it? If they go for Singleton or Gibb, no. I mean, that's clearly not going to work. They need to be outside of comfort blanket. The problem for all survivors is that we have heard this is a new start before. Next week, when you've got home and things are not happening, we might be having a conversation, you and you're saying, well, have they yeah. really done anything? You know, we have to, to manage everybody's expectations. Yeah. You're not going to hear anything very quick. I think survivors need to be involved in this from day one, from next month, whatever. What ensures the independence of that new thing? They have to be courageous, bold, think outside of the church. That ombudsman is going to need to have some strong set of teeth, tiger's teeth. They, he, she, them, however it's formulated, needs to have the power to call bishops to accounts and not in a kind of recommendation-y way. The chief people have been hurt are survivors. But let's be honest, you know, the bishops are finding it very hard. Even the ones who are well-motivated and haven't been scandal-wracked, they are anguished about this. People at the NST, I'm sure it's a very difficult time for them. Some Senate members are very involved in it. A lot of them are still not sure it's for them because they don't understand enough of the issues. And I'm saying that everybody who touches safeguarding is hurt by it. So it doesn't matter whether the Ombudsman or the Archbishop of Canterbury, you're always going to go away thinking, should I have done better? And you may not sleep at night if you're not habituated to doing it. Yeah. Touch safeguarding, you're going to get hurt. We need a certain amount of compassion you know, for, for each other. My feeling is the Ombuds thing needs to be simple. Mediation, that's got to be key. I think as well the setting up of serious funding for lots of groups, survivor groups, that they can't delay that. You know, like Max is running on a shoestring. There are loads of other groups. I've met groups this weekend in, amongst the survivors that I'd never heard of. It's also got to set up a serious redress fund. 21 for 21 is a project the Church Times is involved in to draw attention to young interfaith ambassadors. The deadline is approaching for submissions. If you'd like to suggest someone, please go to www.21421.co.uk. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.